You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. We're going straight to that breaking news this morning from our health correspondent Fergal Bars of a HSE contingency plan for 10,000 hospital beds to cope with a possible surge in coronavirus patients in the period ahead. The development follows confirmation yesterday that we have now entered the delay phase in the fight against COVID-19 with the closure of schools, colleges and universities and a ban on indoor gatherings of more than 100 people and an excess of 500 outdoors. The objective of the measures, according to health experts, is to slow the spread of the virus and thus limit the number of patients needing hospital care at any one time. So we can talk now to Fergal Bars. Uh, Fergal, first of all, what can you tell us about this um, contingency plan which has come to light this morning? Well, the Health Service Executive has been asked to identify 10,000 beds in various locations for COVID-19 cases. It's part of a worst-case scenario for treating cases. So the location for beds uh, would include, well, existing health facilities, student accommodation, hotel rooms, military and other sites. Now, health authorities are hoping these measures may not be required given uh, the decisions announced yesterday, but it's a precautionary move and it's part of preparations. Ireland is, as you say, in the delay phase. And what does that mean? Well, the National Public Health Emergency Team says the new measures may result in 200 people um, a week catching the virus over five weeks uh, rather than 500 people a week over two weeks. That's what the delay phase uh, would mean. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- these measures, uh, including uh, uh, securing and identifying uh, extra beds, would help the health system and society uh, cope better and ease pressure on the system and spread it out over a period of time. And of course, doctors have emphasised that most cases of COVID-19 are mild to moderate and the vast majority will recover. But there are uh, vulnerable groups, obviously. Uh, what, Fergal, about the staffing of these beds? What, what thought has been given to that and uh, where might those staff uh, come from? Well, obviously, the logistics regarding staffing and equipping these beds uh, have to be established. But I'm told redeployment would be a major part and also a call on retired health staff, doctors and nurses, uh, to return to the service to help in this moment. I think we would probably also see nurses being asked to redeploy, uh, perhaps, for example, to help manage community testing, as well as uh, GPs. So, you know, it's a time of national emergency. It will be hard to see industrial relations issues or work practice objections get in the way Mm. at this time of of a national crisis, when all of us, everybody, are being asked uh, to face uh, different challenges. Yeah. You're also reporting this morning that there's a particular focus now on vulnerable groups groups and some further clarification and definition of exactly who who is regarded as vulnerable. Yes, well, um, the Department of Health website has some very valuable information people should look at, including also the HC. But vulnerable groups would include people over 50 years of age and then also in particular people over 75 years of age adults and children with long-term medical conditions, including people with cardiac and respiratory conditions, and people whose immune system is impaired due to disease or treatment, including cancer patients, and residents of nursing homes and other long-stay facilities, including uh, disability uh, services. The phase we are in with closures may extend for many, many weeks. Uh, Doctors are going to face big challenges on prioritising the most urgent cases, I guess, um, in truth, saving uh, the most lives in intensive care. We are about two weeks behind Italy, according to the British Medical Journal. That's the phase where we're in. The measures that are being taken have been taken quite quickly, actually, and perhaps they will ease the pressure on the system. And just a final question, and it's in relation to a suggestion which has uh, come to your attention this morning about how people can be kept informed, can, how information can keep flowing to people during this period. Uh, well, I've received a very interesting email early this morning, uh, this morning sent to the uh, National Virus Reference Laboratory. It's from a woman uh, called Nora, a mother of two uh, primary school kids, who, and she is a microbiologist. And she's suggesting that the HSC engage with all mobile phone providers to send daily health advice to people, messages to people to remind them to wash their hands, to keep a distance of two metres or six and a half feet apart from other people, that there's no need to stockpile goods as 
because shops will remain open. I mean, this is the information directly into people's hands, so people mightn't directly have to go to website pages, thinking here, for example, of people who are deaf, people who have various disabilities. That's the kind of positive thinking that certainly is needed at this time. Very good. Fergal Bars, thank you for that. Sick pay is to be increased, paid earlier and made available to more people. They're just some of the changes announced by the government to deal with the threat posed by COVID-19. Illness benefit will rise from the current rate of €203 a week to €305. It'll be available from the first day of illness, removing the current six-day wait, and there'll be no minimum number of PRSI contributions required. The Taoiseach said the objective was to ensure that workers would not be afraid to self-isolate. Patricia King, General Secretary of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, is on the line. Patricia, are these measures enough to encourage workers to stay at home if they're sick? Well, I think that they are um, a strong improvement on what had been there um, earlier. Um, As you know, last week we had written to the employers and we had requested that they come to some arrangement and the response wasn't that satisfactory. So we then wrote to the Taoiseach and uh, there immediately thereafter we had meetings uh, with the officials in the department about all of this. And, And the basic point we were making to the government was that workers, you know, it's absolutely essential that we have exceptional compliance with the public health advice and workers need to be in a position to self-isolate where where they're required to do so and that while we would have uh, collective bargaining arrangements on sick pay and uh, leave arrangements at about 44% of our labour market. There are 2.0 million workers in in the labour market that need to be covered. And as I say, uh, thousands of them would not be covered by any agreement and would depend on uh, state illness benefit. So from our point of view, we said, you know, they have to be in a position where they can actually afford to comply with the public health uh, regulations. So from that point of view, I think it's also really important to say that in Employers have an obligation here as well. I mean, they they can't be relying entirely on the state to foot all of this bill. We made those points, I think, quite vociferously at the discussions. And I think the arrangements that are put in place place workers in a better uh, position to be able to comply. But for businesses who are losing money as a result of the coronavirus situation, can they be expected to pay their employees in full? Well, there are two things here. Yes, certainly lots of employers are in a position to pay, but some are not and some will need uh, assistance. And alongside the assistance that will automatically come through uh, the illness benefit, that will be uh, an assistance to the employers as well. Um, There were a number of uh, business interventions that were announced yesterday as well. And they're sort of economic stimulus, their additional actions for business uh, with a view to keeping them in business and allowing them to weather this really difficult storm that's uh, um, facing us all. Will unions do their bit to deal with the crisis? We heard reports at the weekend that health service unions said they won't cooperate with HSE proposals for outsourcing, redeployment and a ban on industrial action. Given the unprecedented situation that we're in, should that change? Well, I think that unions and workers across the entire labour market, including in the health service, uh, will. Um, if you if you take it that um, there is going to be a huge demand on all workers, particularly those working in the front line uh, in the health service, in emergency service and so on. Now, I'll just say this, uh, Samantha, they have never been found wanting in the past and I have absolutely uh, can say to you that they won't be found wanting in, in this uh, particular emergency. But Um, We also have to guard against people taking opportunities to do things that are not necessary at all. Um, Industrial action banning and so on is not a measure that's required. Doesn't I mean, these workers will step up, will do what is required. And we know that. And the health service management, the HSE should know that as well. So there's no need to go into that territory. I think that the the workforce will do all that is required of them. They have at any other occasion that they've been required and I've no reason to believe that they won't do so now. Patricia King, General Secretary of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. 
Well, now that the schools are closed, parents are wondering what to do with their kids at home, especially the younger children. The organisation, the Little Medical School, which teaches children about the world of medicine, is making its coronavirus workshop available online for free so that parents can do the experiments at home with their children. For the past few weeks, kids have been learning how they themselves could help stop the spread of COVID-19. Well, for an insight into what parents can now do with their children at home, our reporter Jill Stedman went along to Skullgorman Nefa in County Wexford, where senior infant students were taking part in one such workshop. It's called COVID-19. That's the short name they have on it. Can everyone say that for me? COVID-19. They may be only six years old, but these children already know a lot about the coronavirus. It's a virus that can spread very easily and the best way to not get it is to wash your hands. It's a random flu for young people and a bad one for very old people. It spreads super fastly and and if you don't cough into your elbow it will start spreading all for people. Like many children across the country, the students at School Gormanefa and County Wexford have questions about this new virus. There is a sense of alarm in some of our students, some not so much. But um, I think with social media, the radio coverage, even overhearing their parents talk, children are worried. Emer Russell is the principal of this small school in the village of Castletown. She asked the team at the Little Medical School to give a workshop to the senior infant students. Senior infants would learn through the Ashter programme anyway, so this fits in very well with that. Um, it's an interactive and fun way about learning about something that is a, of global um, concern, but it's learned in a way that shouldn't be too alarmist for them. Um, we've already covered the HSE guidelines through discrete SPHE lessons around coughing etiquette and how best to sneeze and good hand washing practices, and that's our responsibility as teachers. Who do we cough like? The Little Medical School runs a range of workshops for primary school children to introduce them to the world of medicine. It was founded in the US and is now operating in 12 countries. Everything we do is very much play-based education because children engage best when it's play-based. They're engaging very, very much so with it. They're very happy. Wexford man Carl Fitzpatrick set up the franchise here in Ireland. It's no surprise that their coronavirus prevention workshop is in high demand. So over the last number of weeks we have been contacted literally by hundreds of schools around the country that are telling us that there's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety and a lot of uncertainty and misinformation. So the Little Medical School in the States, which is led by Dr Mason, went off and developed a coronavirus prevention workshop specifically for primary school children. So we're here today in Castletown School and we're delivering that very workshop. Yeah, we do an experiment. Yeah, yeah sound like fun. Two experiments were carried out to show the students how quickly and easily germs can spread. One person had glitter on their hands and then the shaking and then and then they passed on to another person's hand. And what did that show you? What was the glitter? It was it was supposed to be germs. Um, we were getting bits of confetti and when we coughed to go onto something. And what did that show you? How far cost went. Then it was time for some hand washing and singing. Baby shark to do do do, baby shark to do do do, baby shark to do do do, baby shark. Four verses of Baby Shark. That's about the length of time you should spend washing your hands. After completing the workshop, six-year-old Keen Doherty talks us through the process. You have to rinse it with water. Next, you get soap on it. And then you rub down to dagger. Scrub it between your hands. And you know the way people don't rub their thumbs properly? You have to go like that. And rub down to dagger. Then wash them. Get a tissue, turn the tap off, and that's how you do it.
Everyone listen to Kean. Kean Doherty, just six years old from Skullgorman Nafa in County Wexford. Four verses of Baby Shark. Uh, Jill Stedman was reporting there. Littlemedicalschool.com is where you can find all the information. It's- The Irish Cancer Society has cancelled its major fundraising event of the year, Daffodil Day. It was to take place on March 27th. The Society said the decision in response to coronavirus was taken to avoid putting volunteers in danger. Averill Parr is CEO of the Irish Cancer Society. She's with us here in the studio. Averill, very good morning to you. I mean, this is a huge event, I know, for, the, uh, for, for your society, a very important fundraising event, and it wasn't a decision I'm sure that was taken lightly. No, it was, really wasn't an easy decision to make, Brian. We only get 3% of our funding from the States. We have to raise over €20 million Euro every year to pay for our night nursing service, counselling, free transport for patients or chemotherapy appointments and all the other vital services we provide in communities across Ireland. Um, €4 million of that comes from Daftal Day alone. So this was not a decision we took lightly, but our priority has to be, as you said, protecting the health and well-being of our patients, volunteers and supporters. And we're also conscious that a huge amount of work goes in to organising thousands of collections all over the country over the next few weeks ahead of Daftal Day. And we want all of our energies to be focused on how we can help patients and their families deal with the threat to the, from the virus. Mm-hmm. We're getting record numbers of calls to our nurse line, people going to cancer.ie looking for information on how to protect themselves and their families. We're still having, we're figuring out how to run our own essential services, you know, and protect mm. patients while also making sure that, you know, that um, we can, we're sa- facing the same challenges within the health service where, you know, if people are sick, they can't turn up, yeah. to, our nurses can't turn up, our drivers can't turn up if they're sick, so we're managing all of that. And you just felt that, particularly because very many of your volunteers, and there are thousands of them around the country every, every year, very many of those are people who've had their own cancer journey and might well be categorised among those who could be particularly at risk. Yeah, absolutely. Many of them are are people who have been affected by cancer themselves, either having uh, cancer or family member, close family member cancer. A lot of them would also be in the older age group, Mm -hmm. um, which does put them at risk. So we have to, you know, while we've no idea where we're going to get this money from, we do need it for vital services. We have to protect people's health in the first instance. And I suppose we're just hoping that, you know, the Irish Cancer Society isn't just me or our team of dedicated staff. It's a community of volunteers all across Ireland. And we're hoping that at the appropriate time, we find a way to fill this gap, that Mm -hmm. we can work together to make sure that we can raise this money in other ways. But we're not sure yet what that will look like. It is a huge hit. come back in a moment and you can remind us of your own helplines and the website and so on um, before we conclude but we're also joined here in the studio by Mark Anderson who's Managing Director of the Omniplex Cinema Chain because Mark you've brought in an initiative which you hope will uh, help to facilitate and encourage social distance is, is the phrase that's been used now to describe how we should interact with each other given this uh, this risk. Yes uh, <clears throat> good morning uh, we've we've introduced in-seat separation in our, in our cinemas which we hope will encourage uh, social separation um, and uh, by um, having unoccupied seats, every other seat will be unoccupied, so we'll be reducing our capacity by 50% in all of our uh, uh, 32 cinemas. In so you operate reserved seats, so you can do that because uh, people will actually book the particular seat. This, this, yes. this is a, uh, an, an online function, so mm-hmm. all of our shows are, are specific reserved seats, so you go in and you choose your seats. So if a couple are coming and they want to sit together, this is something that we're encouraging. They can buy... Uh, two seats adjacent to an uh, unoccupied seat. If they want to sit together, they can sit together. It's something we're encouraging. We won't be enforcing it stringently. Uh, People can sit together. And for example, the the safety and the health of of your own staff, is that something I'm sure that's very much on your mind at the moment, is it? Uh, There's a lot of different strands (coughs) to this. Obviously, we want to reinforce to the public that going to the cinema is a perfectly safe activity to do. We want to show the policy makers that we're taking this seriously. This is going to become a message Mm -hmm. that's that's, going to become coming down the tracks for people, for our patrons and also for our partners in distribution that going to the cinema is something that's going to remain uh, an important facet throughout this right, I suppose, But just also illustrating how interconnected uh, we are, you were saying before we came on air that uh, one of your own family members is very much involved in Daffodil Day or has been in the uh, past. That, so, yeah. That's right, yeah. It's, it's, uh, um, we're, we're, we're very disappointed that, um, that, that the Daffodil Day has been, uh, been cancelled and if there's anything we can do to help with fundraising we're delighted to. And just a final word, Averill, on where people might go if they do want some more information yeah, um, so cancer on cancer.e, we have specific advice for cancer patients and their family members. People have also been asking us, um, like Mark, over the last day, you know, if, if they want to give, how can they do that? You can do that on our website um, on cancer.e if people want to make a donation 
there hopefully that will help to cover some of this hit um, and I suppose just finally Brian just to say you know from our point of view most people who get the virus will recover but it, there is a serious risk for people in at risk groups and I think we all have a part to play every single one of us in Ireland to step all up right. and do the best we can to protect those at risk Okay, Very important message this morning to, uh, to Avril Parr thank you for being with us and uh, to Mark Anderson as well There are now 90,000 daily users of the online social media platform TikTok in Ireland, and they're very young, most between the age of 10 and 20. Ask the younger person in the back of your car. It's a video sharing app, short 15 second videos typically, using dance, lip sync and comedy. And as Eleanor Mannion now reports, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre is now using it to try to teach users about consent, sexual consent. At a young age, you're trying to fit in trying to find who you are, trying to make your life easier and getting into relationships. But for the people that need to hear this, consent is key. 18-year-old Jacob Donegan is talking about sexual consent on his TikTok platform where he has almost 1 million followers. Jacob is one of the 20 leading Irish TikTokers gathered in Dublin for their collaboration with the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre on its new campaign. Dublin Rape Crisis Centre CEO Nolan Blackwell explains. We have brought together over 20 of the country's top TikTokers uh, to come together to help us in Dublin Rape Crisis Centre craft a message aimed at young people who are looking at TikTok around consent. Um, The campaign we're launching today is called 100 Consent, which is a play on 100%. And the message is, if you're not 100% sure that you and your partner in the sexual activity are consenting, then don't do it. So let's make sure there's 100% consent, so 100 Consent. TikTok allows users to record short videos and the content varies from comedy skits and dance routines to lip syncing and pranks. There are 90,000 daily users of TikTok in Ireland. 18-year-old Shauna Davitt has over 350,000 followers on TikTok. She explains why this campaign resonates with her. A lot of the younger generation don't understand. um, they, They might understand yes means yes and no means no, but that's about it. I feel like only people only know that. There is no um, education on blackmail or um, how you feel about consent, and there, there's none of that. There's no, there's none of the grey area being taught, and I feel like that's one of the biggest parts of consent. The grey area has to be taught. I know some of my friends have even we've been in class and we've been taught about consent, and they turn to me and they're like, "Oh my god." Last weekend, that like I was sexually assaulted, and I didn't even know that because they were never taught about it, and it's it's so so sad. Fanula Jones feels the platform is perfect for the 100 Consent campaign. It's very exciting, and because this is the first time something like this has been done, and obviously because TikTok is still relatively new in Ireland, it's very exciting to be using this app and utilizing it in that way, talking about this in a way that's fun, in a way that's accessible in a way that it's not super formal, but it's still really clear what consent is. The TikTokers, who have a combined following of 2.8 million people, have begun posting to their profiles under the hashtag 100Consent. 100Consent is asking people to check in with themselves, whatever they're doing with someone, and to make sure that they're 100% and that the other person is 100%. Now to simple that down, that basically means if someone says no, (laughs) That means no. Be 100% or it's not consent. And that report by Eleanor Mannion. The Syrian civil war enters its 10th year this weekend. It's difficult to estimate, but it is thought around half a million people have died in the violence since it began in 2011. The war has tested lives, communities and borders. It has divided governments around the world. Over the next two days, our reporter Jackie Fox will speak to Syrians about their memories of family, home and journeys. Today is the story of 21-year-old Razan Abdelwahid. The only person who uh, encouraged me to go out uh, on the street, he, um, my father. <laughs> my father, he always telling me, yeah, it's okay, go out. <laughs> but don't tell your mother about this. 
The Arab Spring hit Syria in 2011. One of those on the streets calling for an end to corruption was Razan Abdelwahid, only a schoolchild at the time, but knew that you were either with the government or against them. Uh, the government for some people and the law for some people and the other people out of this life. However, there was a feeling that something worse was coming. The weather changed. You, you can't see, you can't feel comfortable with the weather. Uh, you feel tired, you feel dizzy, you feel uh, uh, lazy, you feel uh, sad with no reason. Uh, the people's faces changed. The food, the taste of the food, the, you feel uh, no, no happy faces there. It's just uh, sadness around. What started as protests turned into a bloody war. And it came outside Razan's front door, just outside of Damascus. But she wanted to carry on as normal. The, the people, they say, uh, it's okay, the school is important, but uh, our children's lives uh, more important. But uh, I refused. <laughs> I went to the school every day. The last year was junior cert, but uh, I didn't complete it. However, people started going missing in her town while the fighting got worse. After army raids at her home, for two years the family left and returned every so often. But Raza knew one day she wouldn't be coming back. Our house, I was uh, walking around. I didn't uh, realise why I'm doing this. Uh, I went to my bedroom. Uh, I took a lot of photos. And uh, I went outside uh, to see the neighbor's house, to see the, where we were playing. And my mother wa- was shouting, yeah, come in, we have to go. The family, along with hundreds of thousands of other Syrians, moved to Lebanon. Here, the hardest things happened. But life there was not how she imagined. And Razan got to work on a farm to buy food, pay for expensive rent and medicine for her father who had heart problems. I see nothing at home. Uh, the food, a little bit. And uh, if we wanted to buy tablets for my uh, father, we have to pay a lot of money. By 2016, more than half of the Syrian population were displaced. One million were registered in neighbouring Lebanon. For Razan and others, the suffering didn't end when they left Syria. We worked uh, for two months. My mother asked him for the money. And he said, oh, did you work with me? Um, I don't remember. And he didn't give us my money, our money. <laughs> and you couldn't tell the, the police about it. When you go to the police and tell them that somebody took my money or somebody hit me, they said, where are you from? Yeah, I'm from Syria. Oh, go out of here. Soon, her brother, who was still in Syria, was killed in a blast outside his home while saving a boy's life. And then her father died. He was dying uh, very, very slowly. The day before was better than today. And today will be better than tomorrow. And he died very slowly. They also heard stories about Syria's deterioration. Uh, They was looking for food. Lots of people ate... uh, uh, the trees, leaves. Uh, lots of people die because they they cold. Three years in Lebanon came to an end when the family were offered a place in Ireland under a UN programme with no English and no knowledge of Ireland. What Ireland mean? I, we thought it's um, Scotland. They said, no, no, Ireland. Their final stop on this journey was to Ennistymon in County Clare, getting a helping hand from local groups. We see lots of sorrow and lots of grief and we thankfully see lots of joy as well at times. Orlini Ailey is from the Clare Immigrant Support Centre. It is a very tough road. You've left the physicality of that behind you, but it's still in you. It's still how you're seeing the world and your family are back there. They don't know, as they say, they don't know what's in front of them. She doesn't miss him in Syria anymore because uh, my mother feel like Syria took her uh, son. 
Now 21 Razan said she doesn't want to let too much hope in, other than a wish that her brother's widow and children can someday come to Ireland to be with her, her sister, mother and brother in Clare. We came to Ireland and uh, I I said, OK, I live everyday life. I'm not going to have a plan for the future. But for my family, good health, peace and that we will be fine. Meanwhile, the war goes on in her home country. That was Razan Abdelwahid ending that report from Jackie Fox. You can hear more stories from Syria tomorrow on Morning Ireland and on this evening's 6 1 News. Coronavirus cases, as we've been reporting this morning, continue to increase globally and here on the island of Ireland. Yesterday marked the first death connected with COVID-19 in this country. The World Health Organization says that in the days and weeks ahead, the organization expects to see many more cases and many deaths. As the immediate outlook is bleak, what are the chances of a vaccine being produced anytime soon? Keen McCormack has this report on the race for a coronavirus vaccine. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. There are a lot of people that will get sick and a lot of people that will unfortunately die before vaccines become available. In the days and weeks ahead, we expect to see the number of cases, the number of deaths and the number of affected countries climb even higher. A killer virus. U.S. health officials say this is the fastest science has ever moved to develop a vaccine. The race is on to find a vaccine. A push worldwide for a coronavirus vaccine might soon bear fruit. There is good news. There are vaccines ready to be tested. But there's a big time lag between testing and production. So the estimates that we're hearing put a vaccine in perhaps 12 months or 18 months, even longer, uh, away from, from being available. Jason Schwartz, a professor of public health at Yale University in Connecticut, explains. There's a lot of, of steps that go into the development of a vaccine, lots of things that can go wrong, but we're looking at least a year away before we really can reasonably expect to have a vaccine available to, to, to help here uh, around the world. Vaccine development is a process that typically takes many, many years uh, if it's successful at all. So the idea that we have dozens, literally dozens of teams working around the world, governments, private sector, nonprofit organizations, trying to accelerate what is otherwise a very, very protracted process uh, suggests that, again, that one-year estimate would be fantastic if we're able to achieve it. Since the 10th of January, when the genome of the coronavirus was published online by Chinese scientists, teams all over the world have worked at breakneck speed to come up with a vaccine. So we're still at an early phase. We um, were able to benefit, as all the other groups were, from Chinese scientists making the genetic sequence of the virus available online. And that allowed us to use that sequence to generate a prototype vaccine within a two-week period um, and within three weeks start early animal testing. Professor Robin Shattock at the Department of Infectious Disease at the Imperial College London's Medical Faculty is already testing a vaccine. Um, And we're partway through that. Um, It's going well. It's giving us results which are encouraging. Uh, But the next phase is to then move the manufacture of that vaccine and start testing in human trials. Um, We hope with the right funding to be starting that uh, by the beginning of the summer. Professor Shattuck says the race to find a vaccine is not a race between scientists. Everyone is sharing and it's a race, but not against each other. It's a race against the virus to get something out there as soon as we can. In San Diego, California... Inovio Pharmaceuticals is also working on a vaccine. We received the sequence of the virus on the 10th of January. Kate Broderick is its Senior Vice President of Research and Development. Immediately we put the sequence into our proprietary algorithm, which designed a DNA-based 
vaccine against NCOVID in three hours. We immediately started manufacturing that vaccine. We're currently running that in laboratory tests at the moment, and we hope to have it in phase one clinical um, trials in April. So that's next month. As the race to produce a vaccine moves quickly, what's happening throws up a dilemma for society. Epidemics trigger accelerated research, but when the epidemics fade away, so too does the research itself and the funding that drives it. Again, Professor Jason Schwartz. These outbreaks will trigger a tremendous amount of investment, a tremendous amount of research enthusiasm that moves full speed ahead. And then when those outbreaks wane, as often happens, uh, the research investments, the priorities uh, turn to other threats and we, we can lose the momentum. Professor Robin Shattock. SARS is a good case in point in that that was uh, an initially an epidemic and luckily it, it petered out after some time. Now, SARS was actually had a higher fatality rate but was not transmitted so efficiently. And that's probably why it petered out. But that did mean that we never got a licensed vaccine for SARS because it went away, the money dried up. Um, If we had actually made a vaccine and licensed it, it might have had some utility against this particular virus. And I think everybody recognizes this time around we will keep going with the vaccine development until we have licensed candidates that are there for you know future coronaviruses should they happen. On top of that, vaccine research doesn't always attract companies because investment may not match a financial return. Again, Kate Broderick. You can imagine this this costs money. I mean, this is not a cheap process to take a vaccine through development. And so we really do need the funding supports of government agencies and um, public-private entities to support this, to ensure that we can protect populations when outbreaks like this occur. Again, Professor Jason Schwartz. It is. The finances of these kinds of products, this kind of research, is very uncertain. Uh, In the best case scenario, we may never need a vaccine that we're rushing to develop right now. That would be a a wonderful thing if the outbreak responds quickly without the need for one. But that also means that the investment that goes in to developing these products uh, may never lead uh, to the kinds of of return, financial return, that uh, drug manufacturers, that the research industry would look to see. So it's an important uh, question in terms of making sure that there are the right economic incentives to encourage the kind of development of these products uh, while recognising that it comes with a great deal of risk and uncertainty. But Paul Dupre, Director of the Centre for Vaccine Research at the University of Pittsburgh, has a different take on this. Of course we have to spend money. Research is not cheap. But I would counter that with stopping flights, quarantining cities, destroying the supply chain, All of that costs a lot of money. In fact, I was listening to the news last night and they they speculate that this could cost the airlines $116 billion. We could do a lot of experiments for $116 billion. We have to balance the money that it costs to do basic research with what happens if we don't have the tools in our toolkit if we don't have the capabilities whenever something like this comes along. It just seems such a pragmatic way to behave. With a vaccine being at least one year away or more, there is no time to be complacent. What happens next is about finding a solution to help tackle a deepening pandemic. And that's a word that has so many connotations. And it's a word that people think and say, and it makes people afraid. And actually, from my perspective, the words don't matter. We're dealing with a situation where we have a virus which we've never seen before. We have something that is new, and we have a problem to solve. And that's Paul Dupre, director of the Centre for Vaccine Research at the University of Pittsburgh in the United States, ending that report by Kean McCormick. 
go to Kalini in South Dublin where a 54-year-old woman died after she was knocked down by a car used by a gang of thieves to make their getaway from a robbery last night. Our reporter Coleman O'Sullivan is there. Coleman, what happened? Well, Gavin, these two women are out for a walk on Avondale Road, which, as another walker told me this morning, is a, a part of a very popular circuit for walkers in the area. They were walking along Avondale Road around 20 past nine last night when a car which had been used in a robbery of Barnhill stores, which is just less than two kilometres away from here in Dalkey, came down Ballinclay Road, crossed the junction across the road onto Avondale Road and struck these two women. Um, there, as you say, there's uh, the 54-year-old woman who is one of the walkers has died. She was with uh, another woman who's in the hospital injured. Um, and the you can see here on Avondale Road there are tyre marks as the car left the road at the junction and went across and then there are pieces of the car still along the road where uh, this accident happened. And uh, these there's three men in the car. The car has been described as undrivable after the accident. The three men abandoned the car and made off on foot. Uh, Guardi, it seems, were on the, the scene quite quickly. Um, they, there was also then a, quite quickly a guard, a helicopter, which uh, was involved in the search for these three men. They have not yet been found. Uh, the women were taken to hospital, to St. Vincent's Hospital in Dublin, where one woman has died and another woman remains in hospital. You spoke to uh, somebody who lives nearby. What did they tell you? Well, they told me that they heard a noise like a scraping, like bins being scraped along the road, and, and they came out and found the scene just outside their house where the three, the two women were lying injured. Their, their shoes were on the road, uh, and Gardy appears, were on the scene very quickly, uh, emergency services also, and uh, they were asking the, the people living in the houses here what had happened and what they had seen. Coleman, what more can you tell us about the robbery? Well, three men uh, apparently went into Barnhill stores last night. One we hear was armed with a knife and took uh, a sum of cash from there and then left in a car which then was involved in this accident shortly afterwards. Now, Gardaí are still looking for those three men. They have appealed for witnesses. They're also appealing for anybody who would have any video uh, in this area last night. So that could be dash cam, it could be cyclists using helmet cameras, anybody who's got any video footage which could help in this investigation. Coleman, thank you. That's our reporter Coleman O'Sullivan in Kalini in South Dublin. Italy is in lockdown. The St. Patrick's Day Festival has been cancelled. Six Nations rugby matches are postponed. As countries across the world continue to cope with the spread of COVID-19, what are the implications for travel and what about the costs associated with medical treatment abroad? We've gathered a panel to discuss these issues. Garod Gilly, Head of Customer Services at VHI Healthcare, is in our Cork studio. And we're also joined by Siobhan Maguire, Consumer Journalist and RTE's Consumer Affairs Correspondent, Fran McNulty. Thank you all for joining us this morning, Frank. Can I start with you? The government is now advising against travel to any part of Italy. There'll be a lot of Irish people who've planned trips there. Where do they stand right now? This improves their situation, Sam, because travel disruption cover, if you have uh, travel insurance, will kick in in most instances here. And in terms of refunds for bookings or cancellations, your hand is really strengthened when there is official government advice in place. Part of the difficulty with Italy in particular up to now has been that in mainly affected areas, the those northern areas where travel restrictions and advisories were in place, people had a level of cover there. But if you are anxious about travelling elsewhere, chances are you were losing out if you wanted to cancel a booking or change a booking to an alternative location. This advisory, which has been confirmed by Simon Coveney within the past 30 minutes or so, really changes that. It will also mean that the airlines have to look at the situation uh, more meaningfully. Now, as of now, this morning, Aer Lingus have, have no comment to make. Ryanair are saying they'll comply with, with any decrees, as they call them, that are put in place. And they're going to uh, assess and advise uh, passengers early today as to what the situation is regarding Italy. But I should say, uh, Samantha, this morning, uh, I'm in a position to book flights. 
I, I tried, I went on the Aer Lingus website, I went on the Ryanair website, I can book a flight to Rome this weekend. So flights are continuing to operate as of now. It's just that the advisory is in place and that means that if people want to cancel, they will have more protection and there's a better chance they'll get their money back. And Fran, does it matter when you've booked your holiday to Italy, for instance, if you booked it in advance and you've already paid, or if it's, it's a long way down the line, say August, September, are you still going to be covered in those scenarios? If you have travel insurance, yes. The only real restriction, uh, and there are varying uh, restrictions, if you took out a policy today, uh, it wouldn't kick in for probably seven days, in some cases 14 days and more. But the reality is, if you take out a policy today to cover yourself against travel to Italy in a few weeks' time, um, the advisory has now been issued, uh, so that probably will not be valid. It, it will be void. Uh, but in many cases, people who have travel insurance will be covered because of this travel advisory. And not a lot of people have travel insurance. It tends to be the minority of us take out travel insurance. But there's been a huge increase in the last two weeks in the number of people taking out travel insurance because they see how vulnerable they are because we've become so used to uh, ordering fl- booking flights online, booking hotels online ourselves. We don't have the protection of a travel agent and then we tend not to have the protection of travel insurance. And then add to that, Samantha, we often tend to make the bookings on the like of bookings.com or hotels.com where we don't pay the extra little bit so that we can cancel because we like to travel cheaply. People are changing their spending plans now. They're tending to take out insurance. Some people moving back towards travel agents because they see they are quite vulnerable when you have a situation like this ongoing. And Fran, the thousands of Irish rugby fans who've booked tickets for Paris for the Six Nations match that's been cancelled. Given that Paris isn't a restricted area, will the airlines reimburse their airfares? What about their accommodation bookings? And what about tickets for the match? With regard to reimbursement, probably not. I know Aer Lingus have, have, they have adjusted their bookings uh, policy, so you can change a booking free of charge now with their, on new bookings with, with Aer Lingus. On new bookings, many of these people will have bookings made previously. I think a lot of people uh, for the rugby are going to lose out, Samantha, because a lot of them, if they're on packages, chances are it will roll over whenever that fixture uh, is changed. You probably will be okay, but if you've booked your own flights, if you've booked hotels online, you're probably going to lose out. We don't know what the situation is uh, with tickets as of yet. Uh, there's nothing, Six Nations have said nothing, there's nothing on the French Federation's website either. There is talk about those tickets for the match rolling over again. But if you're not in a position to attend the next time, we don't know as yet whether you'll get money back for your tickets. I think sporting fans in general, and when you hear uh, the situation with regard to the Slovakia game as well, people are going to be out of pocket. There is just a reality, uh, unless you have travel insurance. And the other thing we need to to look at as well is the impact on the airline industry uh, generally because planes are flying empty the it's an industry uh, which is already under pressure we're going to see airlines fail as a result of this uh, inevitably some experts would say and that's going to present further issues down the line as well Garoad Gilly from VHI Healthcare, can I bring you in here and, and stay with that topic of the Six Nations in Paris? If the airlines or the health, hotels won't reimburse people, would a travel policy cover people in that regard? Uh, good morning, Samantha, and to your listeners. Um, we, we are considering um, all the insurance implications on, on a daily basis, but since the, the outbreak of the coronavirus, the type of questions our customers are asking us is, is what does my insurance plan cover me and the medical insistence and support available in the event of an emergency abroad. We, we, we are basing our cover application on, on the basis of the Department of Foreign Affairs advisory to Irish citizens and that is if the location you are going to um, is, is on the, the list of affected places then your cover will be in place provided you have bought the cover and you'd booked your travel in advance of the area being listed as, as affected. In relation to the Rugby International, right now, as you said, that Paris is not on the affected list. So therefore, um, technically speaking, there would, be, there would be no cover. But however, in the current situation, we are going to consider cancellation claims for our insured members, where the sole purpose of the trip was to attend the particular rugby match, which has now been cancelled. Um, we are working through the detail at the moment, but it's important to say that, that we're going to see various events into the future that we're going to look at on a case-by-case basis. And Garoad, can people buy insurance now for holidays they've already booked and be covered if that holiday is cancelled or they y- want to cancel it themselves? Y- yes, they can, Samantha. And, and I guess the, the, the proviso is that as long as the area they're going to is is unaffected, okay, 
and you've made your, 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 your trip booking, you've bought your travel insurance and the area you're hoping to go to is an area that's not listed on the Department of Foreign Affairs um, area or country that's affected. Yes, cover would apply, but the important point is that um, you, you, you make your booking, you, you take out your travel insurance and, and you're going to a particular destination that is currently <coughs> unaffected. Are you facing very large payouts because of the fallout of COVID-19? Very early to say, Samantha. Um, at the moment, our focus and indeed the focus of the entire industry is to make sure we treat our customers with empathy and at also to ensure that, that we treat our customers very fairly. Um, it's very, very early to say because we haven't seen the full impact of claims yet. We do not plan to increase our prices um, and I think we won't get a very uh, specific picture in relation to claims for quite some time yet. And Siobhan Maguire, consumer journalist, can I bring you in here? How is the industry responding to this evolving situation? It's very interesting, uh, Samantha. So, um, for example, online bookings, we have the likes of booking.com um, and, and they uh, control a huge portion of the uh, online booking market where hotels and um, other accommodation is concerned. They have declared a fo- force majeure, forced circumstances where they're basically um, telling uh, their, their partners, partners being their hotels, to um, waive any consul- cancellation costs or expenses in situations where guests or travellers have requested cancellations. Um, We also have uh, the likes of airlines uh, doing their bit as well. I have to say Ryanair has been very comprehensive in terms of the detail on its website and it states um, as of yesterday it announced further cuts to its flight schedules to and from Italy but it is stating that it is uh, while the situation is changing on a daily basis all passengers on flights affected by travel bans or cancellations are receiving emails and being offered flight transfers, full refunds or travel credits. Um, In relation to insurance, if if I can just make a point on that, we have to look at the likes of um, health insurance and and the part it will play in all of this. Because obviously, if you get sick abroad, what do you do? Um, There are certain things like the European Health Insurance Card, the EHIC, which you can apply for um, on, on the HSE website. And that basically covers you for on a holiday or a short short term stay and need to access uh, public hospital facilities. Mm-hmm. But but then when we look further afield to the likes of uh, the US, we see how the coronavirus is already affecting people there. It's estimated, new research has estimated that people in America without um, health insurance uh, experience a 20% blow to their income just from having to pay their medical bills. And we've had two examples already of American citizens being flown back from affected areas where they've been uh, charged in excess of $2,500 for an ambulance trip they didn't even ask for. If an Irish person finds themselves in an affected area within the States, what, what can they do? I, th- I think Siobhan makes a really good point there because uh, going to the US it's, it's very, very prudent for you to take out travel insurance w- without a doubt. Uh, there's one point I'd make in relation to health insurance um, in Ireland and that is you do have a particular benefit if you are temporarily abroad okay, and it works in tandem with your travel insurance that if there's an, a, medical, a medical emergency abroad you do have, particularly with VHI, um, medical expense cover between 65 and 100,000 euro but the whole purpose of taking travel insurance is to top up that particular benefit. But it's really, really good, uh, Samantha, in the sense that if a medical emergency happens you ring a helpline number, okay. they will manage your care pathway and take care of all the different liaison with hospitals, etc. and with family. Okay, we're going to have to pause this discussion for the moment but it will continue online because we've lots of other areas we want to cover. You can watch a live stream on Twitter on at RTE News, on the RTE News Facebook page or RTE News Now. We'll also publish it on our webpage as a podcast, which you can download anytime and it'll be available as a Morning Ireland Extra podcast. Next to a story this morning about a scam targeting those who are desperately trying to find somewhere to rent, mainly in the capital. RTE News has uncovered a series of ads on legitimate property websites which are posted by people who are trying to con other people out of large sums of money. In one case, when our consumer affairs correspondent Fran McNulty interacted with a fraudster, they tried to lure him into transferring more than €2,000 into a Spanish bank account to rent a property 
which didn't exist at all. Fran is with us now. Fran, what is happening here? What's happening is you're seeing ads being posted on legitimate websites, as you say, Audrey. In this particular case, I saw an ad for a one-bedroom apartment in Rathmines, very nice apartment, looked very nice in the pictures. The rent was a little over €1,000 a month for a very small apartment, which in today's market is very good value for money. Uh, the person on the ad asked to correspond with them via WhatsApp, which is a bit of a warning, uh, did so, was then asked to contact them by email and got into email correspondence. At first, they seemed legitimate. They wanted to know about me as a tenant, what I did, could I afford the deposit. They told me a little bit about themselves. They said that they, uh, their daughter had been living in the apartment. Uh, she was moving back to Spain because she was pregnant. And I told them I was a journalist. They didn't seem to mind that, despite the fact that this was clearly, in the end, uh, a blatant fraud. But there were some telltale signs, that WhatsApp correspondence. Then in one email back, Audrey, they said... Don't worry, we won't be moving back to Belgium anytime soon so you can have the apartment for as long as you wanted. And that was the real red flag. They clearly are running scams in, in other countries. They also couldn't say how I would collect the keys for a viewing, but they wanted me to lodge money into their account in order to secure uh, this uh, particular apartment. Now, anyone f- trying to find a place to live, in particular in Dublin, will know it is a huge struggle. There's a massive shortage of properties. If you respond to ads online, it's really hard to get a response. Demand is very high. And Dr. Lorcan Sir from the Technological University in Dublin says that's why these scammers are targeting people. I think in a constrained market, um, you'll see fraudsters realising that there are a lot of desperate people out there and a lot of people who would be probably more willing than usual to part with money because they're, they're in such a desperate situation to get themselves accommodation. So there's, and there's also probably an increase in the number of people who are more susceptible to these um, types of frauds. They wouldn't have encountered them before. And in fairness, your general public don't have the resources uh, nor the, the, the skills or ability. You're, the fraudsters are always three steps ahead of the general public. So you're going to find in, in, in times of really high demand and low supply, you're going to find an increase in this type of activity and also more people are going to be susceptible to it. As Dr. Lorcan, sir, there and Fran, just to emphasise, these aren't obscure websites that these cons are being found on. They're on legitimate websites. Yes, and in one case, uh, in daft.ie, we saw this ad for that apartment in Rathmines. Uh, they suggested, this uh, person, this fake landlord, that we use Air- Airbnb uh, to arrange the payment. Now, Airbnb, one of the most recognised, reputable websites in the world. Daft.ie, the biggest property website in the country. So you reckon you're in fairly safe territory if, if you're doing a rental. They said they wanted to use Airbnb, Audrey, because it was safe. And if I didn't like the property, I could simply get my deposit back and get my money back safely and securely. And then they sent me a link, which was supposed to be uh, to an Airbnb website, but it was a fake uh, link. And if you inspected the actual address, you would see that. But many people wouldn't detect that. And and Audrey, the website looked identical uh, to the Airbnb page. Now, some of the tabs at the bottom about contact us and about Airbnb didn't work. Apart from that, it looked perfect. On the actual link they sent, I could go in and look at the landlord and the reviews they had had from other people. Fake reviews, praising them. They even sent an invoice uh, for the rental property uh, and it was an Airbnb, looked like an Airbnb document. It, for all the world, it looked perfectly like it, except the fact that they wanted me uh, to transfer money to their bank account. Now, Gardaí have said this is a crime uh, which is on the increase. In fact, uh, this year, uh, it's fair to say, reports of rental scams have skyrocketed so far. Here's Detective Superintendent Michael Crine of the Garda Economic Crime Bureau. There has been a, a good increase this year, in the first two months of this year, to be approximately a 100% increase on the same period in 2019. Um, there's basically two, there's people in Ireland who are looking to book abroad and people abroad who are looking to come to Ireland and it, it's through various platforms on, on the internet. What about the January, February when you reference them there, how big a loss, how, how much have people been? It, approximately €80,000. Half of them would have been people who are outside of Ireland who are looking to come to Ireland and some of them actually arrived in Ireland and realised the apartment did not exist and called into a guard station to report it, and that's how we became aware of it. How big are these operators? How many of them are out there? Are they operating globally? How many of them are operating here? Do you have a hold as a force on, on what's it's going it's on? Difficult to put, um, I, it's difficult to say that, because it, it's difficult to put a connection between all of these. As I said, there are different... I, I would have looked at the ones for the first two months of this year, and it would appear in about 30% of them there is a fake website there. Mm-hmm. But it's difficult to see at this stage whether there is a connection, because these are January, February of this year. But there is often an international dimension because the bank accounts are in different countries. 
That's Detective Superintendent Michael Cryan there. So what are the legitimate websites which are being used in this instance saying, Fran? Well, daft.ie says that it has recruited a former uh, member of Angarda Siakona uh, to oversee this. They say they take fraud very seriously and work with authorities. Now, they wouldn't tell us how many fraudulent ads had been taken down from their website in the last year. But it said it also says that fraudulent ads need to be reported by the users of the website. Say they, they say unless users of the website who come across these frauds report them uh, to Gardaí, they can share private information with the authorities. And they say that uh, when the ad we brought to their attention uh, was detected as soon as they became aware it was a fraud it was taken down. Now I did, I did receive emails from Daft as a user of the website advising me that I may have been targeted by fraudsters and to be on the, on the lookout. Has Airbnb responded? Yes, like you have to remember, this is like Daft, a respected company, a huge global company, um, and that's why scammers are using them and why it's so trusted and respected. But Airbnb told us that this really has nothing to do with them because it actually wasn't on their website. It was a fake website. uh, And they say they work with partners to have fake websites taken down. Um, But they say because none of this actually happened on Airbnb, it has nothing to do with Airbnb. And, and that's part of the difficulty here. They are using their likeness, uh, but effectively, it's not Airbnb. So they too say they work to tackle fraud. They take it very seriously. But in a case where you uh, get a fake uh, link like that, uh, you need to you need to refer it on to Gardaí. Now, some experts say that just isn't good enough. Here's Dr. Lorcan Sir again. They're putting the onus for the detection of these types of activities back on the general public and the, and the users of the website. And the problem there, of course, is that it, A, it can be you know far too late when that happens. The, the scam can already have happened when the person re- reports it. Um, and also, again, the, you know, the general public doesn't necessarily have the, the knowledge or understanding of what, the fraud, what kind of fraud was perpetrated nor how. So I, I think it, in general, they're putting the responsibility back on the users when really the responsibility should lie with the people who are providing the service. In the first instance, I think. That's Dr. Lorcan Sir from Technological University with Fran McNulty. Fran, thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.